I think there is a great need for more awareness and debate about so many issues, and yet people are overwhelmed by the science and the bad news about weather events that often people close down to what's going on. Um, and I think there is a big place for art to, especially socially engaged art, to kind of open up those conversations and allow people a bit of space to think about things. For me, uh, a green awareness is a way of thinking and approach to the necessity and, and value of things. Green initiatives can help to kickstart this change that's required to our thought processes. In the summer of 2021, artist Natalie Taylor and architecture design collective Urban Radicals joined forces with landscape architect Adam Harris to design two green art installations that would be exhibited on the Great Exhibition Road in South Kensington, London. The South Kensington Green Trail marks the 170-year anniversary of the Great Exhibition of 1851. Discover South Kensington, the VNA and the Science Museum are all partners of the project. Two of the most poignant pieces from the project are Natalie Taylor's Food Banks for Pollinators and The Windflower by Urban Radicals. Both focus their ideas and art concepts on a greener infrastructure within the city and approach both art and architecture through the lens of sustainability. This August, we took the time to sit down with both Natalie and Urban Radicals to discuss their expectations and how we, as individuals, can work towards creating a greener planet and a brighter future. You're listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast. Talking Culture is a platform for thought-provoking discussions about the future of the UK, Europe and the rest of the world. I'm your presenter, Lucy Rowan. Natalie Taylor is an artist, designer, gardener and activist who uses tools of visual communication to challenge our harmful relationship to nature and plants in particular. Using research-based methods and responding to many scientific reports, in recent years she has addressed ecological subjects in a visually arresting and sometimes light-hearted manner. Focusing on her 2021 Food Banks for Pollinators installation at Prince's Gardens, we have spoken with her about the installation in both Weimar and London and her intentions behind this new green installation. Hi Natalie, where does your interest in plants and ecology, particularly in biodiversity and rewilding, originally come from? A lot of it must come from my early childhood where every summer we would leave the city and we would travel down to Suffolk and we would spend six weeks running barefoot along the river bank and playing in the river and the sand and um yeah playing with boats and just you know we were kind of running wild and I think also my mother she she's always been a very keen gardener and grew beautiful flower beds and raised fruit trees and bushes and I always kind of admired that. So I think when I went to art college this influence came out in the work I was making first and I guess I continued into work making work about that as a young artist and harnessed the growing force of nature in plants with making kinetic sculptures. So I think I was trying to give agency and a voice to plants and seeds so that I realised they were silent but they were also sort of sentient and kind of possibly even conscious beings. I know that sounds strange, but I kind of wanted to explore that and give them agency and a voice and attempting to kind of marry this slow, silent moving world of plants into sort of human time. And I also spent a lot of time watching seeds grow. <laughs> Again, that might sound quite strange, but I would, you know, put them in little glass jars and put them into little boxes with tissue paper and, and water and watch them over a number of days or even weeks and see how the kind of radical root would come out and how the first cotyledon seeds leaves would come and I found that endlessly fascinating and making little films like time-lapse films of them and things like that and then I think gradually my work became more politically motivated as I read more and I became more aware of ecological 
situations. And I made a series called the Suicide Seed Sculptures and then um, a seed of paint series of paintings about genetically modified seeds. And now I think about sort of 20, 25 years later, my work has become really focused and framed within the environmental perspective. Um, and I, you know, I attempt to put all of my all of my output, artistic output towards the issues that are, you know, the main issues of our time. And I think that that's probably really kind of fueled my, my practice. So far, you have made a wildflower bed in Weimar, Germany, and also in London. The first one was in Weimar. What were the challenges you were met with there? Yeah, there was quite a few challenges. Um, I was commissioned by the Goethe Institute London to create this piece in late 2020. And obviously earlier in the year, we'd come out of a period of, you know, severe lockdown and we were in a period of a relative restriction easing. And then suddenly just after Christmas, we went into lockdown number two when I started making the work in, in real space. So everything was done virtually um, and remotely. Um, I worked very closely with Marin Hobine from the Goethe Institute in London. And, um, you know, we would have conversations and send emails and then Marin would sort of translate into German um, some ideas. And then eventually we had to find a piece of land remotely and had to hire a local photographer to take photos of the possible spaces in Weimar and send them back to us and then look at those and then work out if they were possible and then negotiate for creating our artistic invention intervention with the various institutions who controlled that land. Um, and originally my vision for creating this rewilded flower bed was specifically for within the very tightly regimented parks and gardens, which Weimar is so famous for. And as I became more aware that these were kind of controlled by strict UNESCO rules, that they had to be preserved as sort of traditional, um, you know, exemplars of park land. Um, we, you know, we had to look for alternative spaces. And luckily, the city of Weimar Parks Department stepped in and offered us an initially difficult looking space beneath uh, a large rotating digital screen and surrounded by a road. And then, you know, there was this tiny little island of lawn next to a, a very large shopping mall in the centre of Weimar. And I first saw it and I thought, oh, gosh, you know, this is not what I had envisaged at all. But when I thought about it more, I realised how appropriate it was because this was a sort of ultra commercial con context where people were rushing past to buy and sell things. And um, it just seemed like to have this really quiet piece with, you know, insects and and birds possibly even and and the plants you know placed there and trying to create a small little ecosystem and in the middle of this really busy location seemed to be kind of really appropriate and i hope that lots of local people take notice of it and and have a look what were the key differences that you identified between weimar and london in terms of the production process and also the location when creating both of your wildflower bed projects well, I think essentially the pieces are both the same. Um, they're in very different contexts, so they are framed differently and have different, uh, I guess people would have different responses to them. But in terms of the sort of physicality, the font of the letters and the scale of the letters is the same. It's roughly five metres high by about 15 or 19 metres wide. Um, but in the Weimar piece, it's much more of a kind of peripheral or transitional space, which people might pass by on their way to take part in, in shopping. And it's next to a very busy road. And then obviously here, insects and wild plants are at the bottom of the list in terms of what the location is offering. But in London, it's in a really lovely, calm garden, the Prince's Gardens, overlooked by the buildings of Imperial College and the Goethe Institute. And it's in the centre of Kensington. And people would come there to the park to relax and eat their lunch and meet each other. So the kind of atmosphere is very different. And I'm hoping that by introducing a wildflower bed here, the positive impact of having in insects visiting the bed such as butterflies and bees will be more noticed by people and the park will be able to keep going with the bed into the years to come and let it sort of spread a little and sort of almost rewild a little patch of their um, park. So I do know that the excellent garden team there has already plans to create wildflower borders so this project fitted in really well with their direction um, so hopefully yeah there'll be more beds like this in the gardens there soon too. And do you think the locations will influence the impact of the flower bed? I'm hoping that both flower beds will be allowed to go to seed at the end of the season this year and then set the seeds for next year's generation on both locations. Um, you have to cut down wildflower seeds at the end of the season 
um, let let the seed heads sort of spread their seeds, but then remove all the all the the, the stalks and and the flowers so that it doesn't create rich soil. You want really kind of quite poor soil for wildflowers. Um, the Weimar one is managed a bit differently by a community-based organisation, and so we'll have to hope that the local authority who own the land allow it to continue next year. But the London version is very likely to be able to set seed for next year and perhaps start to blur the edges and become more of a wild space. So, what was your choice behind the word rewild? Well, I guess I'm asking the viewer to consider what it is to rewild both outdoor nature and also perhaps ourselves. For me, it's also about letting go of some of our controlling and dominating attitude to the natural world. And just to allow space to let other species have more, you know, more room and uh, continued habitat for their well-being and ultimately their survival. In fact, we so successfully controlled insect populations by getting rid of their natural habitats, such as wildflower meadows and verges, and also by spraying our gardens so carefully with insecticides that around 45% of insect population abundance here in the UK has reduced since the 1970s. That means our bees, who do so much to pollinate human food, are actually struggling to survive. And unless we address this balance, we'll have to start pollinating our own food crops by hand at a huge labour cost. So I think, yeah, I think there's a really big argument for rewilding not just large pieces of land like in Yellowstone Park with the wolves introduction or, you know, areas of former sort of farmland like at the Nep estate. I think there's a big argument for actually rewilding our urban environments too. What's the connection between rewilding and sustainability? Yeah, I noticed recently that we passed Earth Overshoot Day globally on the 29th of July in this 2021 this year. Um, so this means that we as humans have already consumed more than the Earth can regenerate within this year by that date. Um, so our addiction to economic growth is simply not sustainable and we have to start adjusting to a different outlook before we kind of implode. Clearly, we need to collectively reimagine how we live here on Earth and look carefully at how we can live more sustainably together and with the species here. Can we, for example, start to create cities where most people on Earth live that are sustainable, not just for ourselves, but also for wildlife and have spaces everywhere for insects, birds, bats, plants, trees, water creatures and even predators such as hawks? Could this even extend to city farms where agroecology, the kind of intersection between growing food and maintaining biodiverse habitats exist? Can we, you know, can we start creating spaces where we, we're not just the dominant species, but where we coexist with lots of other species happily and, you know, create a sustainable, sustainable world. Could you explain more about your personal conviction? I've been working with environmental themes as an artist for around 25 years, mainly focusing on our relationship with plants. Um, and then when I started a family about 15 years ago, the environmental situation was really pulled into focus for me. And I started to worry that there would be so little left for the new generations and that I really needed to address this in my work. And I was asking, you know, what kind of place are we leaving for our children if we don't start to restore it as soon as possible? So I kind of make work to focus on this as a priority, really. With this installation and your art more generally, are you attempting to evoke a debate on sustainability and stabilise your support for it? I think there is a great need for more awareness and debate about so many issues, and yet people are overwhelmed by the science and the bad news about weather events that often people close down to what's going on. Um, and I think there is a big place for art to, especially socially engaged art, to kind of open up those conversations and allow people a bit of space to think about things together. What was your approach to finding an S-space in Weimar for the Rewild project? With the Weimar project, um, we were working during lockdown. So Marin and I were um, corresponding by email and through Zoom and you know, we had to find a space in Germany. I was in Edinburgh, Marin was in the Goethe Institute in London, um, or working remotely in London, actually. And, you know, obviously we had to find someone in Weimar who could go out and about and, and take photographs for us so that we could identify a suitable s spot and then work, work from that point onwards. So we spent quite a few months trying to find the right space. And then, of course, getting agreements from the landowners who were mainly municipal or city or also owned by the classic Stiftung, um, which is an organisation in Weimar. Um, and a lot of these spaces were actually protected under UNESCO rules, which meant that they couldn't be changed from the original design. So that, that kind of changed a lot of the approach I was trying to do in terms of trying to 
yeah, trying to make it a kind of rewilding and intervention in in a very traditional parkscape. So in the end, yeah, the the the, the space that we found through the author local authorities in in Weimar was this space by the side of a busy road next to a busy shopping centre, and you know it's a kind of very yeah, kind of a very kind of transitional space where, you know, flowers and parks and sitting around um, enjoying nature aren't really at the top of the agenda. So in terms of the piece, the rewild piece, this was really something that was at odds or at very great contrast to the situation, which I think, it, in fact, in the end, makes it, it quite strong in terms of you know pulling into focus the kind of disparity between the need to rewild or, or you know, provide habitat for insects and other species in, in cities and how we're actually currently approaching it. What kind of reactions are you hoping for then? As I said, in Weimar, it's a very busy transitional space where people are crossing the road towards the shopping centre and, you know, walking past and they may not be able to you know, spend time contemplating the artwork, but its location is in stark contrast with the, in, you know, the intention of the word rewild, the creation the location is really geared towards human activity and I'm trying to invite the passerby to think for a moment about the impact that this might have on the wider ecology of the environment by providing this special space for the insects who so badly need it. How exactly can individuals contribute to rewilding our cities? Are there any first practical steps you would recommend taking? Well yes, there's so many things that people can do. One thing is, if you own a garden, is to immediately stop using insecticides and pesticides, as this will allow for insects to return. And then, more proactively, you know, if you plant wildflower seeds in pots or native plants, even you can create a wonderful new habitat full of flowers um, to attract little insects. You know, the butterflies, bees, hoverflies back, and you know, it'll be lovely to watch those creatures coming back to your garden. And if you've got a bit more space, then you could even turn a section of your lawn into a wonderful wildflower bed. There are also lots of other um, charities who are kind of petitioning the government and trying to put pressure on local authorities to stop using spray so widespread. Um, so, yeah, signing petitions and writing to your local MP or a councillor, that's obviously another good way of doing it. And I've created a, a, a butterfly postcard campaign where I'm encouraging people to create a beautiful postcard through collage and, and then write on the back and then send that to their local MPs and local councillors to try and, you know, let them know that people are, are, are aware of this and, and do care. And what do you think local councils and national governments should do to rewild their cities? I believe it's time to ban all the neonicotinoids and harmful insecticides immediately in the UK, a bit like France, who have recently banned five harmful neonicotinoids, which uh, affect bees so badly. What can an individual do to have an impact on creating more green spaces within urban environments? It's possible for one person to have quite a positive and encouraging impact on their local neighbourhood. If neighbours speak to each other about their local verges and peripheral spaces and then try and rewild them by planting seeds, you know, between, say, October, November to about February, March. And then also, you know, to tell your local councillors that you you really you know care about this um this issue, um and then take advice from charities such as the Bumblebee Conservation Trust or the Butterfly Trust, um you know and people can band together and work together to pressure the local authority in charge of these spaces to try and find alternative ways to to do weeding and to to manage the parks. Ecologically oriented art has been around since the nineteen sixties. Could you pinpoint a piece that's had the greatest impact on you? More recently, there's the Scottish artist Katie Patterson, who's created Future Library, a specially planted forest in Sweden, which will be used to create the paper for a commissioned but secret book, only published after a hundred years. And I find the ambition and long-term vision of this breathtaking. Also, in terms of thinking for future generations, the artist is thinking exactly as we all need to think. So, preserving natural spaces and resources for people who are not born yet. Then, right now, there's socially engaged projects like Rachel White Reads. Fruit Futures Initiative in Gary, Indiana, where the locals in a post-industrial city are encouraged and then become deeply involved in planting, maintaining and harvesting fruiting orchards, both as an artwork, but more importantly, as a way to make a local community more resilient in their own food production. If you had the opportunity to think even bigger, what kind of ecological project would you like to realise? Well, that's a good question. 
I'd love to roll out a wider scope for this project in terms of doing multiple sites across a UK city in partnership with the local authority, local people and nature conservation bodies. I'm going to start a pilot project for this in Edinburgh soon, so hopefully that will turn into reality before long. Your installation includes ideas of sustainability, the protection of plants and animals. It references landscape gardening and even billboard advertising. Are there any layers we might miss at first sight? Yes, you're right. I think there are all these things in there, as well as the rewilding notion of bringing back natural habitats and especially ecosystems into spaces where nature has suffered from development or intensive management. But I think there's maybe also the protest banner in there. Whilst it's not in the context of a street protest and obviously can't be carried, it does have the overtone of a large one-word protest banner. Um, And I think that must come from having spent a lot of time in 2019 making protest banners for Extinction Rebellion in Edinburgh and got really interested in street art and how visual creativity can activate the public space and encourage people to get involved in moving ourselves forward into a more positive framing for the future. So I would definitely see this as a plea or even a provocation to take up action and not to rest with simply words or ideas. Have you got any other upcoming green projects or are you taking a change of direction? This month I'm very excited to start a new long-term, new year-long fellowship with North Light Arts, an ecological and community-based art organisation in Dunbar. This will focus on the theme of soil, such a fundamental topic for future human survival. Um, according to the UN Soil Report of 2015, there was only 30-40% to 40% of global soils left which could be used for agriculture, as many areas of farmland soils are being degraded through chemical usage, urban sprawl and even wind erosion. So we need to address how we take care of and nurture our soils globally and locally in terms of leaving a healthy legacy for food production for future generations. The world of art is not the most necessarily sustainable place. What are your criteria for a sustainable art practice? And how do you go about implementing that? I think artists, art colleges and art students alike have a responsibility to think about where their materials come from, how far away are they brought and how are they produced? How are we travelling to exhibitions and shipping our artworks around? How are these works going to survive or degrade out with our lifetimes? I think these questions would be good to ask every time we make an artwork, and I do try to bear these in mind every time I develop new work. In November this year, the COP26 Summit will take place in Scotland, where you are based. Are you optimistic about it? What are your expectations? I think there are many of us who are hoping for a major new agreement to keep global heating to well below 2 degrees C. This means every country, especially those in the global north, has to drastically reduce carbon emissions immediately um, and totally phase them out by mid-century. Personally, I'm I'm maintaining what the renowned Buddhist scholar and environmental activist Joanna Macy is calling active hope in my life, and I'm trying to have hope for this forum and give encouragement through my art practice. I think there is a function of art practice which can help people see the world in new ways and reveal things which people either haven't seen or have chosen to overlook for a long time a role for sort of laying out possibilities for the future, which people may not have imagined yet. Going back to Joanna Macy again, her analogy of business as usual, which she sees as being followed by the great unravelling, which I think we're currently in, and then hopefully a transformation into the great turning. I think artists have a key role to playing in laying out their transformational views of what remains unseen in the future. As we all know, the future is not fixed or planned out, and each of us has a part to play in shaping the future and creating a new world for future generations. And I think art can help open up the conversations and create pathways towards this. This is what I have hope for, in the sense that through art and social change, we can positively change the future together. Urban Radicals is an architecture design collective that started out in 2019, initially as a duo between architect Nazios Varnavas and designer Ira Savides. The collective aspired to not only form a network of collaborators, but also solve problems across contexts. Since its inception, the studio has grown to become one of London's most popular think tanks on green infrastructure and sustainability through its offering of projects, competitions, workshops and conversations. By working across different disciplines and through the broad skill set and perspectives of its expansive team, the studio is able to generate rich, impactful projects rooted in both place and context. 
for the hashtag South Ken Green Trail, which has been part of our Going Green initiative. Urban Radicals collaborated with Adam Harris. Adam Harris is a landscape architect and project manager working at Millimeter. Adam is passionate about native wildflower species and creating spaces that increase biodiversity in an urban setting. He believes that by developing our connection to natural processes, we benefit both our cities and well-being. Let's hop straight into the discussion. You designed your installation in response to an open call which invited projects that show how plants, greenery and biodiversity can be creatively embedded in Exhibition Road's public realm, reclaiming space for nature amidst the bustle of the capital. As a collective, your central aim is to bring a greener infrastructure to the city. So what was it about this call specifically that appealed to you? What appealed to us was um, this amazing opportunity to design for London's public space and people um, to promote our ethos and work to, to a large audience. And of course, just the opportunity to work with such uh, exceptional cultural institutions such as the Goethe Institute, the VNA, the Science Museum. We were also particularly interested in the history of Exhibition Road as a means to promote new ideas for innovation. So similar to the Great Exhibition in 1851, the call acted as an attractor to showcase this uh, the shift of technology, innovation and design, which happens now, promoting sustainability and ecology. So uh, this competition allowed us to showcase the way we see architecture and design disciplines contributing to the way we relate to our environments and use our resources. And how exactly did you come up with the idea to use a decommissioned wind turbine blade? We were uh, initially researching COP26 and other green initiatives, and we, we really became interested in concepts of green lean energy production and how these are a way forward and away from oil and gas. Uh, this research led into some interesting facts about wind energy and the industry, which is prominent at the moment. Um, we looked into projections uh, looking forward uh, 20 to 30 years from now, and uh, some articles outlined the amount of waste from uh, the wind turbine blades, which will form graveyards under the Earth's surface. This provided us the initial starting point and we basically decided to, to frame the conversation on notions of circular economy and creative uh, upcycling. So from waste we're uh, basically turning um, a material or a product into uh, a new design that can be repurposed and placed within our urban environment. Uh, it's really important to highlight that as designers we have the vision and the knowledge to orchestrate the, the creation of new systems uh, such as this, uh, turning a um, decommissioned wind turbine blade into uh, planters for the city and this may be beneficial to, to our society. You were asked to think about the life of your installation beyond its time at Exhibition Road. Its different components will go to schools for example afterwards. How much does the wind turbine industry think of the afterlife of its products? Our approach has always been to create a long life for the project. Where things go after their intended use is really important to step away from this throwaway culture. It's great that they're going on to schools to hopefully inspire the next generation of the possibility to repurpose things that are deemed at the, the end of their life cycle. I hope that the windflower gets the reaction of wonder for what could be. We would love to see the windflower be taken care for uh, by different schools um, and, and children of, of the area. And we imagine that each flower bed uh, is a different uh, opportunity for, for these kids to um, learn about the life cycles of um, native wildflowers, uh, gain a sense of authorship into the work, uh, and, and curate a small garden uh, from each school. 
So your installation is called Windflower. Are there different layers of meaning in its title? Windflowers uh, or anemones, as uh, they are called in Greek, are the daughters of the wind. Uh, these are very prominent in uh, ancient mythology and they have a layer of narrative that uh, people can read into. Uh, we were also uh, keen to make people aware that the structures themselves are related to the wind and the wind turbines, hence uh, we named them uh, the wind flower. Another important uh, thing to mention is that the anemone itself has a broad range of species, uh, colors and types and we thought it would be a nice uh, symbolism to the diversity and multiplicity which is key to the way we practice within the studio. When we think about wind turbines we imagine them filling fields or out at sea. Now this turbine will be in the middle of the city, cut up into pieces and filled with flowers. Safe to say you've taken the blade on quite a journey. Was it an easy one? Well, the project was definitely a big challenge, especially because it operated completely outside of traditional norms of conceiving and fabricating a piece of work. So I think our, our meetings and conversations with Catapult right from the beginning those were so important as to securing the decommissioned blades and uh, delivering them to a to a fabricator to work on under kind of a very tight schedule and with techniques and materials which they hadn't really explored before to this scale. So it was kind of a, a journey of discovery together. Uh, it was a challenging one. But uh, yeah, I think with the right people and positivity and commitment to the idea, we managed to make it happen in a very short time, as well as making everyone involved excited for contributing to something new for London. Dealing with a piece of infrastructure was incredibly challenging. Firstly, because of its sheer scale, uh, turbine blades range from 25 metres to 45 metres, and apparently um, all catapult are testing one that is over 100 metres meaning that they require specialist haulage if you're going to transport them in one piece. Secondly, because of their ever-changing shape along its length, cutting the blade was largely unknown as we were not entirely sure what the materials were um, used in its creation and how the surface would react to being cut. So um, this combined with a really tight schedule meant a really intense period of development. Um, there's usually this, this tipping point in, um, in projects I find. It's a, it's a make or break moment and, and when you push through that um, things, things come together and it feels like a small miracle um, when they actually do to be honest. So your installation The Windflower is smack right bang on Exhibition Road in between Imperial College London and the Goethe Institute London in this very traditional classic setting. How did that setting influence the creation of your installation and thinking about you know environmental structures in that area? And secondly I would also ask what kind of infrastructure do you believe this very old and historical area of London needs? Well, this part of the city uh, does feel like the epicentre for culture and uh, the institutions along Exhibition Road are all, all world-class. So the opportunity to create something within the public realm and alongside uh, one of the institutions was a great opportunity. The project is an unexpected structure within the historical fabric of Exhibition Road. Uh, it contrasts rather than uh, borrow any aesthetic references and we believe that sometimes it's necessary to propose bold ideas which stand out from their setting. Nevertheless, uh, the historical importance of the Great Exhibition as a way to showcase new innovative ideas was something we were very inspired from and uh, really helped us develop the whole narrative for the project. 
Adam would be best uh, for explaining um, the ideas uh, behind vegetation, uh, but we chose to use native wildflowers, uh, which have some relations to surrounding parks and gardens, so people can actually relate, relate to and read the installation as a continuity of a, of a trail. Um, the windflower essentially acts as a conceptual link, a small fragment to enhance the continuity of a larger green public space uh, of nature, uh, gathering and enjoyment. The windflower offers possibilities for even smaller fragments of green space to be situated throughout the city. Of course, it's not just the streetscape. Roofs and facades also can contribute to a green environment, contributing to better air quality for all of us. The white columns of the Imperial College, which I believe are in compression, and the white turbine blades, which I think are intention, is an interesting balance to, to ponder when viewing the two, two elements uh, side by side. Do you believe that initiating green projects goes hand in hand with having an overall green awareness? And in the conceptualisation part of this project, how prominent was keeping a sustainable approach and what did you do to ensure you remain sustainable as much as possible? What reactions and responses were you hoping to gain from your installation? For me, uh, a green awareness is a way of thinking, an approach to the necessity and, and value of things. Green initiatives can help to kickstart this change that's required to our thought processes. We're coming through an era of capitalism and consumption and our views need to change from being inward and individual to outward and joined up. Well, yes, the fact that instead of building up with new materials, we are uh, reusing, so chopping and reforming a decommissioned blade, it shows that this thinking or, or this creative reuse of materials it could be applied through different projects and different initiatives. So it's more of a way of, of thinking, really. Instead of throwing away products, we can rethink their afterlife. And this should become a way we live and practice and should really be applied at all scales. From infrastructure to architecture to fashion, nothing sh should go to waste. And I think designers really are able to revive and breathe life into systems we are able to prolong the way we treat our resources. We, we have the knowledge and the skills to, to do that. And uh, even working with Adam on a previous project, we ended up using a lot of leftover cork, which was left from um, a previous exhibition of the Tate Modern last year, to build this bench for a public space. And although this was not in the original plan of works for us, it was just through being really open uh, in our conversations with Adam and through looking at what might be available to use that we took the opportunity and turned it into such a positive initiative, which was much more exciting to see forming rather than what we initially had in mind for, um, for this bench. So I think ultimately we see our practice and Urban Radicals opening up conversations on how different disciplines can convene through research and collaboration to solve bigger scale problems and kickstart initiatives which can hopefully help in generating change both for our cities and the people inhabiting them. Moving on to the cooperation with Adam Harris and Aerotrope, how easy was it for each side to understand one another? For example, the artists and architects approaching an engineering company. What was that relationship like? The way we practice and actually the way that Urban Radicals has been set up as a studio um, which allows people to enter uh, the work um, and contribute to a piece of work uh, has at its very base uh, notions uh, and ideas of collaboration. Uh, we, we are really interested to work with uh, friends, uh, with experts, and um, collaborate with other disciplines. Uh, I, I think it's uh, very important um, 
for projects to develop beyond the, what might be the norm and uh, we feel that the projects uh, themselves ha have a lot to gain and we have a lot to gain from 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 these ideas of collaboration of um, conversation with other disciplines and practices um, at, at moments uh, architecture feels uh, that it operates only in a very uh, restrictive bubble and what we think architecture is but we we really want to uh, go further um, and uh, we really believe that without these collaborations uh, architecture and the way we practice is, uh, the way we practice it uh, cannot exist collaboration is one of the greatest tools we all have in moving forward it's not always easy to consider a different approach but it's definitely healthy communication is, is obviously a key component and creating space for others to express their view working with people that have expertise in their field is a great opportunity and and it widens one's own perspective at urban radicals you typically take a very collective approach to your work in practice how does this pan out exactly with every new project, do you form a brand new collective? It does and it doesn't. So we see every every project as a new challenge and a new problem to, to find, explore and, and solve. We don't really believe that design is, is uniform or an applied aesthetic signature. So I think this helps. We instead, with every project, we, we hope to integrate all players, like people, materials, research, structure, socio-cultural systems which together it, it forms almost like a design equation in, in one in one composition so in this way each project is an exciting challenge that we wish to to tackle and innovate upon and how did the collective form this time round who are its members and how have they been working together on this project the team formed naturally through our connections uh, at the core um, it's uh, Urban Radicals uh, director Ira Savidis and I, Nasios Varnavas, uh, working with Adam Harris. And as the project grew, the team expanded uh, organically. We reached out to Chris Jones from Aerotrope and he helped us uh, getting some contacts into our catapult, who, who really helped us find the decommission blade. Um, there were more people involved, uh, such as Mark Ralph from Critical Crate Fright, who really helped us to transport the blades uh, pieces from the north to our friend and collaborator Jack Shivers of Design and Making. And uh, later on, uh, we worked with Atelier One, uh, who helped us uh, on the structural calculations for the project. It's important to mention that uh, we were in constant conversation with the London Festival of Architecture, the Goethe, Emily Candler from Discover South Kent, and everyone has been extremely accommodating and um, helpful to, to make this happen. What inspiration exactly could you or others draw from the classical engineering and machine industry, taking it through into the rewilding or ecological art scene? Well, at its core, engineering is a discipline to resolve problems in the most efficient and logical way. So if this is its purpose, then architecture's role, which comes beforehand with the concept and the idea, it should be about asking the right question, one which is um, current, one which is urgent, and of its time. Both are part of the same cyclical process, and I think one cannot exist without the other. I think good engineering pushes architecture forward, and vice versa. And it's this closed loop in the end. It becomes a distillation of both, and to us, you know, it's inseparable. You developed this project in response to an open call that encouraged projects that open up the conversation around sustainability and the environment showcasing the role of design in tackling the challenges presented by climate change. So have sustainability and countering climate change been criteria for choosing your projects all along? 
Or do you perhaps even consider them an integral part in architectural design today? When designing in the public realm, all, all the projects I have undertaken have been to resolve or, or contribute to resolving an issue. My profession is largely client-led, so it depends on the brief, I suppose, but it is definitely our responsibility as designers to always propose the most sustainable option possible because we have to be constantly aware of where things have come from, how they are made and where they're going to next. You know, it's the designs that have multiple functions that that seem to be the most successful. Well, you know, architecture always reflects the complexities, ethics, ideals of our times and our societies, good and bad. So with this in mind, we believe that our work it should contribute to the actual conversation on climate change and in effect hopefully it, it, it can help in changing how people understand this allowing them to to in a sense enter and engage with the urgencies of our times how do you deal with the demands of managing projects across different countries whilst also maintaining a sustainable professional practice for example how do you handle difficult areas regarding shipping materials or energy to maintain the projects and installations that you have installed? Our working method uh, in a way challenges the traditional office structures and the way they operate. Uh, we are a collective which can grow when necessary to tackle larger scale projects and this flexibility basically allows us to operate and respond in different contexts and with, with our expansive network. Uh, this network has been formed by like-minded colleagues and friends who also believe in the horizontality of creative uh, process. Uh, the way we practice is basically uh, a way to be anchored in locality, uh, yet we, we love and we we want to engage with the larger conversations such as sustainability on a global scale. Shipping items or materials overseas is, is undoubtedly an issue. The first decommissioned blades actually that we were offered for the Windflower were, were actually situated in Denmark, um, which would have obviously been ludicrous to ship to the UK if not only for the carbon emissions, but for the cost of actually bringing it into the country. Um, so, yeah, being as local as possible is always, always the preference. Not always achievable, but but to always be mindful of this is, is definitely, definitely the case. Do you think it's possible to maintain a globally connected existence or can we only remain sustainable if we stay local? Well, this is the big uh, question right now, isn't it? Globalization, regulation, and you know, even the protocols which are enforced to create guidance, they shouldn't limit the way we practice and the way we build. Under the global push for um, this 1.5 degrees, well, the architecture of the 1.5 degrees it doesn't mean creating these copy-paste cities which look the same across the, the globe, these non-places. I guess instead we should hope that local idiom and wisdom, uh, tradition, craft, that these are able to become integrated into, into these bigger scales. So yeah, the answer might be in the end this hybrid between the two, uh, a global way in which both local and global push the urban environment forward. Taking it way back to the first grand exhibition in 1851, where you would find inventions such as the telegraph, the plastic chair, or Crystal Palace itself. What has changed since then? Do you think the people back then were also thinking within parameters such as sustainability, recycling, or ecology? If you were present in that time, what installations would you have introduced to 19th century London? If the Crystal Palace still existed, what kind of infrastructure would the building need in 2021? 
Ecologically speaking, we are far less focused on the imported, the exotic and the manicured, as was probably the case in 1851. Now we are appreciating the local, the more indigenous and wilder environments. It's the boundaries between disciplines that are finally merging and the distinction between landscape and architecture and engineering all seem to be blurring. What if the new version of Crystal Palace was grown out of the ground uh, using vegetation and trees? Um, can we grow the next Serpentine Pavilion? We would be up for the challenge and perhaps uh, we would have liked to see it in our edited version of the 19th century painting of Hyde Park. You've been listening to artists Natalie Taylor, architecture, design, collective, urban radicals and landscape architect Adam Harris. All three have given an exclusive insight into their sustainable art and installations. For those eager to explore these creations further, food banks for pollinators and windflower can be visited up until November 2021 on the Great Exhibition Road and at Prince's Gardens in South Ken. The Goethe Institute is the culture centre of Germany. We foster international cultural exchange and enable cultural involvement in over 100 countries worldwide. In London, we offer German courses, cultural programs, events, a fully equipped library, and much more, both in our institute on Exhibition Road and also online. To find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at www.goethe.de forward slash London. Through fascinating interviews with thinkers and doers in the arts and culture sector, this show investigates how creative fields are emerging from the tumultuous present into the future. What role will culture play in a post-Brexit, post-pandemic and post-colonial world? We also question how will culture contribute to a future that prioritises sustainability, collaboration, diversity and inclusion. Thanks for listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast, a production by the Goethe Institute London.